Right. I'm thankful we still have that communication by phone. Probably will get cut off sometime in the future. But we have it now, and I'm thankful for it. Well, tomorrow evening is Bible study, New Moon Bible study, beginning the 12th month of the year, uh, tomorrow evening, and Monday being the first day of the new month. So we're closing in on the first month of the year, and I, I hope we're all already praying that God will give us blessings in the first month. We uh, have been anticipating His blessings for a long, long time, and they have been withheld while this attrition and trouble goes through the church. But I hope we're nearing the end of that as the trouble seems to be now coming on the nation as we have always anticipated, uh, the blessing should turn around and begin with the church. Church first, then the world will have their blessing in the millennium. So <clears throat> maybe the time for the turnaround, I hope, is this year. I certainly do. A lot of us are about to approach terminal, terminal velocity in our path to the grave, it seems, because of age and health and everything else. So, for to be renewed, hopefully it'll be soon. Anyway, that's something to be praying about and hopes that that be the case. I always like to look forward and hope instead of back in misery. Uh, yesterday can't do you a bit of good. Uh, yesterday's gone. Today and tomorrow is all that count. So, forget yesterday and move forward. So Bible study tomorrow evening, let's do it at 7, uh, 7 tomorrow evening. That way we can get home and get to bed early like old folks do. Let us turn to John 8, beginning today, book of John chapter 8. Let's begin in verse 27, or no, 29 I want. And he that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. Now we know Christ has promised that he will never leave nor forsake us either. Just as the Father did not forsake him, except briefly there as he was dying. He did forsake him. He said, oh my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was just for a very short while, for a very important reason. He had to die for our sins, and God could not be connected to him at that moment, because he had been sinless up to that point. And suddenly, he was totally full of sin. Not his own, but yours and mine. And our sin separated him from the Father. <clears throat> but until he suffered the penalty of our sins, he had pleased God, and God did not forsake him. Verse 31, uh, Then said Emmanuel to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, 
and the truth shall make you free. Now, just what does that mean? The truth shall make you free. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, depending on how they approach it and how they even approach the Scriptures themselves. Because most Protestants would tell you that the truth is that the commandments are done away with, and we don't have to keep the commandments now. And that makes us free. We can lie and steal and cheat and commit adultery and fornication and all the things that the flesh might want to do because the law is done away. And if we accept Jesus' name, we're saved and we're going to heaven. And if you don't accept Jesus' name, you're going to hell, which means that most people on earth today are going to hell, if that be true, right? Because most of them, out of over 7 billion now, have not accepted Christ. we got possibly hundreds of thousands of Chinese dying over there who have not accepted Christ's name right now. According to Protestant doctrine, they're all going to hell, burn forever and ever. Right now, they're burning their bodies in incinerators. Set 40 up right there in Wuhan. And then they're going to go burn eternally. So they get a, get a good send-off, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. So, to most so-called Christians, the truth that makes them free is you don't have to obey the law of God. That makes me free to do pretty much whatever I want to. So, what does the truth mean? Well, if the truth is the law of God is still in effect, then you have to keep the law of God. Now, how does that set you free? Because you're, you're now implored to, instructed to, told you must keep all those laws. And you're not free to do a lot of things that your body and mind would have you want to do. So then how are you free? Because you want to do this and this and that, and the law says you can't do that. That sounds more like lack of freedom on the surface of it, doesn't it? I'm not free to do whatever I want to do. Now, our whole society, apart from Christianity has said we're free to do anything we want. If it feels good or sounds good, do it. So they feel that they have freedom. There's nothing to constrict me. I can do whatever I want. Now, is that freedom? How? Now, he said... And I quote it again, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So that could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Now, what does it mean to you and me? How should we interpret that? Well, what should we think about it? Now, I know the church has always read that and says, all right, you're free to keep the law. Because we used it as the counterbalance against the world which says there is no law, and the church said there is a law. And I just rehearsed that. But 
is there more to it than that? Let's see if we can see some other sides of that today that might help us understand and be prepared to face what's coming. Now, you'll know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What is truth? I won't turn there, but John 17, 17 says, Your word is truth. So if you say the truth will make you free, then you could say also your word shall make you free. God's word would make us free. Same thing. Let me add one more to that. 1 John 5, I will turn to that one. You're very familiar with the one we just quoted, but let's also look at this one. 1 John 5. And let me pick it up here in, I think it's verse 5. Who is he that overcomes the world, but he that believes that Emmanuel is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, that is baptism, but by water and blood, his death as well. And it is the Spirit that bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. So, we've seen that the truth will set us free. The Word of God is truth. And that also, the Spirit of God is truth. Now, he tells us that his Spirit will lead us into truth. It won't lead us into lies. But His Spirit goes along with His Word. And if you have the Spirit of God, you will learn to rightly divide the Word of truth so that you understand what the book is saying. Now, a lot of people read the Bible and don't have the Spirit of God. And the Bible does not lead them the words of God. Do not by themselves lead you to truth, do they? Many people have read the Bible, which is truth. But they don't know the truth. Because the Spirit of God was not there to lead them into truth. So you can read the Bible till you're blue in the face, but if you don't have the Spirit of God there to help you rightly divide or interpret what is said, then you don't get it, and you can't find the truth. Protestant commentators are an example I use. They wrote, some of them, many volumes of books to explain the Bible, to comment on what God has said. And you can go through every one of those commentaries, and you'll find very, very little truth. There'll be some... There will be historical truth. There won't be much doctrinal truth because they've totally misinterpreted God's Word. So, let's attempt today to get some practical understanding of what it means for God's truth to set us free. Let's go back to Genesis. And here, 
pick it up at about chapter 30. Now, this is the story of Jacob, and you know that he went to work for Laban, who became his father-in-law, and he had his eye on Rachel. I'm not going to read all this for sake of time, but I want to get some points out of it, and I'll, I'll refer to a few places. He, uh, he was very, very fond of Rachel, and he wanted to marry her. So he asked Laban if he could marry her, and Laban said, okay, you've worked seven years, and you can marry her. So he worked seven years, and they had a big wedding party, and he was expecting to wake up with Rachel on his pillow the next morning. And I don't know how much he drank, but he woke up with Leah on his pillow. And this upset him pretty greatly, uh, because that's not who he wanted. So he said to Laban, why did you do this to me? And he says, well, you should have figured that out. The older daughter has to get married first before the younger one can. Well, why didn't you tell me this seven years ago? <laughs> you know? Well, he knew that the deal would fall through, so he didn't tell him till he'd worked for seven years. Then he had to work another seven years to have Rachel. It isn't quite clear in there whether he had Lee and Rachel there together and he had to go ahead and uh, have Rachel on credit and work seven years afterward to get her. It's possible he had to work 14 years before he ever even received Rachel. Anyway, it goes on through and shows about all the children that he had. Uh, Rachel was barren, couldn't have children, so he took a series of handmaids and had uh, children by, what was it, at least four different women. And she finally, uh, Rachel did, bore a child, but she had said, Give me a child or I die. And she had a child and died. Be careful what you say. Now, something else occurred here. Laban had cheated Jacob, obviously. And it says a little later on that he changed his wages seven times. Now, what that means is that he raised his wages seven times. Is that what he did? You know, you don't expect to get a pay decrease, do you? I mean, even from the your Social Security, you expect a $10 increase every year or whatever it might be, not a decrease. But what Laban did was decreased his wages ten times. Now, that doesn't sound too good. Anyway, Jacob came up with a plan, and he initiated it. I think God gave him this idea, because a little later on it says that God blessed him with all these cattle and sheep and goats and so on, camels, that he wound up getting from Laban. So he recognized, the deal was, that Laban would get all the solid colored animals, and Jacob would get all the ones that were speckled, spotted, and ring-straked, not solid colors. So Jacob peeled poles and put them down on the ground. He devised cattle guards. You know, they put steel pipes across the road down here, and the cattle won't cross it. 
You can do the same thing with poles. There won't be any hole down between them. But if you set a series of poles out there, five, six of them, a cow won't cross them. They just won't go across. It scares them. So he was off in the distance feeding the cattle, and come breeding time, he'd lay these poles down, make a corral out of flat posts, so that Laban couldn't see them in the distance. He didn't make upright corrals. He made cattle guards all the way around. And he put all the spotted, speckled, and ring-strake bulls in there with the solid-color cows. And you know what happens then. You get spotted calves. So over a period of time, Jacob's herds grew huge, and Laban's kept shrinking because the solid color was not dominant in that case. Well, we go down to the end of chapter 30, verse 43, uh, well, 42. When the cattle were feeble, he put them not in. Uh, so the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. And the man increased exceedingly and had much cattle and maid servants and men servants and camels and asses. So he had increased greatly. Now, he heard gossip, verse chapter 31. Laban's sons didn't like what was going on because they saw their dad's herds decreasing and Jacob's increasing. He's taken away all that was our father's, and of that which was our father's has he gotten all this glory. And Jacob looked at Laban's face, because his sons had been telling him all this stuff, I'm sure, and it was not toward him as before. <laughs> he wasn't smiling anymore. It's kind of like it was with the church, right? God smiled on and blessed the church up to a certain point, and then his face began to change. And then he turned it away. He said, I can't look at this. And then he blew it apart. Now Jacob saw this happening in Laban's mind because he wasn't smiling anymore. He was frowning at him. Now, verse 3, The Eternal said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So, here he was in the edge of a maelstrom of trouble. Laban wasn't happy with him. His sons weren't happy with him. There was big trouble on the horizon. Those sons would have made some move at some point to take back what they felt was theirs, right? Now, he'd kind of already been through this with Esau, had he not, taken his birthright. And Esau was mad at him, and he's about to go back and have to face Esau again. When God told him, go back to where you came from, he was taking him out of the frying pan of Laban's sons and into the fire of Esau. So God had given him instruction, and I will be with you. That's truth. God's Word is truth. Now, it's written here as part of the Bible, which makes it true. But when God uttered it to Laban, it was truth. It wasn't a lie, was it? If you do what I'm telling you, go back to the land of your fathers, I'll be with you. 
You can count on that. You can take that to the bank. Whatever God says is truth. Now, it didn't probably sound to Jacob like God's truth was going to make him free. It sounded like trouble. Well, Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah, and he said, Your father is not looking happy at me. And you know, with all my power, I've served your father, and your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times, but God suffered him not to hurt me. Now, Jacob had been promised by his father Isaac that he would be as the sands of the sea. Now, that was instruction that had come from God to Isaac and then to Jacob. So this had to be believable. He had to say that in the face of all this trouble that he was facing, God would see him through and keep those promises all the way back to Isaac and Abraham. So God hadn't allowed him to hurt him. And then he'd taken these uh, cattle. He's explaining to his wife, what his, his wives, what his position was. God has taken away the cattle of your father and given them to me. Now, that's what makes me think that God put the idea in his head of cattle guards. That God has done it. And when they conceived, uh, the speckled, spotted, and grizzled came out. And the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up now your eyes and see. All the rams which leap upon the cattle are ranged right speckled and grizzled, for I have seen all that Laban has done to you. So God gave him the solution. And suddenly he was a very, very, not suddenly, but over a period of time, he was a very, very wealthy man. And God was behind it. Now, did Jacob deceive Laban? Yes, he did. But Laban had deceived Jacob first and way beyond the normal. So God allowed Jacob to deceive Laban, and he supported him in it, did he not? I'm the one that gave this to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar, and where you vowed a vow to me. So he says, I did this for you, and you vowed a vow to me. Now, return to your land and your kindred. And Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there yet any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? <laughs> no, he counts us as strangers, and we're not going to get anything from dad. You got it all, was their reaction. We're going with you. Okay, so the girls are on his side. God's already told him he'd be all right. Now the girls say, we're going with you. And then Laban had some gods, and Rachel stole them. Now, if you think Laban and his sons were upset before, what if somebody steals your God? That upsets a person. Laban realized they were gone, and he assumed Jacob or somebody in his company had done it. 
And he came, and Jacob said, I haven't done this. He didn't know Rachel had stolen them. She didn't tell him. You know, people worship their gods. What if somebody took God away from us? How would you feel? Well, Satan's trying to. The New World Order is trying to. You going to let it happen? Could the very elect be deceived? Yes, if it were possible. Satan is trying to steal your God. Does that upset you at all? Does that bother you? What are you going to do about it? Well, Laban saw his images were gone, so he went to Jacob. Jacob said, I ain't got them. He says, look through all our stuff. So he went through Jacob's tent, didn't find them, went through Leah's, then he went to Rachel's tent. Uh, she was sitting up on a box, and she had them in it, and he searched the room, and she says, well, Dad, I'm at the time of women, and or I'd get up and say hi and, and embrace you and so on, but this is this is a, a delicate time in which women were actually put out of the camp in Israel. So he didn't bother to make her get up, and that's where she had the gods hit. <laughs> She's pretty smart there. But anyway, he got out of that one. Now... Let's go on down. Uh, Laban was upset. Verse 29, it said, It is in the power of my hand to do you hurt, but the God of your father spoke to me. Laban had a dream up there in uh, verse 24, and God told him, not his gods, but the God of Jacob, to not treat you either good or bad. Just be neutral. And then he says, why did you flee away secretly and steal from me and didn't tell me you're leaving and so on? And I couldn't even kiss my sons and my daughters goodbye. Uh, it is in the power of my hand to do you hurt. But the God of your father spoke to me yesterday saying, Take you heed that you speak not to Jacob either good or bad. And now, though you would needs be gone because you soar longed after your father's house, yet where for... Uh, have you stolen my gods? Well, that's I got ahead of the story a little bit. But Jacob was angry with Laban, and he said, What is my trespass? What is my sin? You've hotly pursued me. Uh, verse 38, These twenty years have I been with you, fourteen to get the women and six more. And the ewes and the sheep goats have not cast their young, and the rams of your flock have I not eaten. That which was torn of beasts I brought not to you. I bear the loss of it. He kept the speckled spot in ring straight, but the death loss and all those things, no, he, he absorbed it. And I was in the day that the drought consumed me, and the frost by night, verse 40, and my sheep departed from my eyes, and my sleep departed from my eyes. I've been working you for you for Day and night, through thick and thin, storms, everything, for 20 years. And you've changed my wages ten times. He's trying to get some things straight here. Now, except, verse 42, the God of my Father, 
the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, have been with me. Surely you have sent me away now empty. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you yesternight. So what is he saying? God promised Abraham, Isaac, and me that you would bless me. And his word is truth. Now, he's about to get free of Laban, right? Here's a practical example of how believing the words that God tells you will turn out right. The truth is what makes you free. Listening to, believing, and following the word of God. So here he's getting free of Laban. Uh, so he went his way. We get down to chapter 32. And Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's host. And he called the name of that place Mahananim. And he sent messengers to Esau, his brother. So he got out of the frying pan with Laban, and now he feels like he's heading into the fire. Because he knows Esau hates him with a passion. A passion that Esau never overcame, Hebrews 12, and which is still there today between the Israelites and Esau. And Obadiah shows that Esau will overcome and help oversee the destruction of Israel here in the end. So Esau is going to have his day. Now Obadiah also says it won't be a day that lasts very long and he will punish Esau. But here, this was the original Esau, still alive. So Jacob sent messengers to Esau, his brother. And he told them, Thus you shall speak to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says thus, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. And I have oxen and asses and flocks and men servants and women servants. And I've sent to tell my Lord that I may find grace in your sight. Now he knows what Esau had been like to him in the past. Now he's trying to do what he can to ensure safe passage through Edom. Now notice he's doing what he can for himself. You'll note that he did what he could for himself when he made the cattle guards and increased his flocks and herds. God had promised him blessing, but he had his part to do. And here, even though God said, I'll keep you safe and I'll bless you, go home. He accepted that and headed home. Managed to get away from Laban. Now he has to face Esau. And he knows there probably will be trouble. Therefore, he begins to take of means of trying to defray that trouble. And then they came and told him in verse 6 that Esau was coming and he had 400 men with him. And he imagined they were armed to the teeth. Wouldn't you think? Then Jake, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Now he had been promised everything's going to be okay. But he saw 
Esau was coming with 400 men, and he probably didn't have 400 men, at least not fighting men, and he knew Esau was mean. So he was greatly distressed and afraid. That's kind of human, isn't it? (laughs) When you see something like that coming on you. You can be greatly afraid and distressed. Now, what's going to make him free? He's scared, half to death. And he divided the people that was with him and the flocks and herds into two bands. And he says, if Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company, which is left, will escape. So, he divided everything he had in two and sent some one way and some another way. And he thought, well, if Esau catches one bunch, he'll think that's all of us. And the others will get away. So that was his part, what he thought he could do. And Jacob said, verse 9, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which said to me, return to your country. (laughs) He's reminding God of what he told him. And to your kindred, and I will deal well with you. So he reminds God what God had told him, because now he sees serious trouble on the horizon. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth. Now there's a wonderful attitude. You promise me these things, but I'm not worthy of any of them, which you have showed to your servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands, Deliver me, I pray you, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And you said, God, I will surely do you good and make your seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So it wasn't just the present promise that God had made, go home and I'll protect you. He's going all the way back to Abraham with this. And he lodged there that same night, and he sent a present to Esau. It names all kinds of animals he sent. And then he knew Esau would be coming, but he's trying to send him a gift ahead of time. Uh... He sent his family over, and he stayed alone, the river Jabok, or the creek. Left alone, verse 24, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Had a wrestling match, lasted all night. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, that normally would end a wrestling match right there. You throw your hip out of joint. uh, That's the end. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. And Jacob said, I will not let you go except you bless me. Now, there's a part of Jacob's character that's pretty important. He was not someone who would give up. He was pretty persistent. 
And he said to him, What's your name? And he said, Jacob. <laughs> and he said, Your name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince has you power with God and with men, with God and with men, and have prevailed. So he had overpowered Laban, and he was about now to do the same with Esau, gently, peaceably, but prevail. And he had prevailed through a night of wrestling with Christ. Now Christ could have whooped him at any moment, and when he came to the point that he was done with it, he just touched his thigh, and normally you'd quit. But Jacob said, I will not turn loose till you bless me. How are we doing here? How are we doing? It's been a long time since the church was blessed, hasn't it? It's been a long time. We're going to hold on until he does. Will we endure to the end of this period of time in which he has turned his face from us? Do we believe him? How many times have we read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, and seen the promises that God makes to his end-time church if we will endure and be patient and obey? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of passages tell us that. He says his truth will make us free. I read to you recently how we're going to have in this nation one-third die of famine and pestilence. One-third are going to be killed by the sword and one-third taken into slavery. And only less than 10% remain through until the millennium. I also read to you Psalm 91 which says that if you dwell under God and His protection, people will fall at your left side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it won't come near you. Do you believe that? It's in the Word of God, isn't it? And if it's in the Word of God, what is it? It's truth. Isn't that true? It's in the Word of God. Therefore, you're free from the coronavirus or whatever else follows it. You're free from famine and pestilence. You're not going to starve to death or die of a disease. You're going to be free from the sword that is going to come on this nation shortly. And you will not be taken into slavery. What is a slave? A slave is someone who is not free. And God says we will remain free. We won't become slaves. Wow. Wow. The truth shall make you free. You won't be a slave. You won't be dead. You'll be alive. And you won't be hungry. Isaiah 55 says, Come, have milk and wine without money. It's the Word of God. Is it truth? You believe it? Going to live by it? Well, Jacob believed it. And he hung on till he got a blessing. We gonna hang on till we get a blessing? Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray you, your name. And he says, Wherefore is it that you do ask after my name? And he blessed him there. 
And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And from then on, he halted upon his thigh. He was crippled. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh, to this day. When they'd butcher something, they wouldn't eat that area where his thigh shriveled out of respect to God and to Jacob as a memory. All right, we see a practical application there where, and we could go on and finish the story, but Esau came and Esau was glad to see him much as he hated him. (laughs) And he he says, don't even give me the gift. And Jacob said, I have plenty, take the gift anyway. So Esau took it. You know, you try to be polite and turn something down, but yeah, he wanted it, so he took it. And then God, Esau gave him safe passage through the land. He thought he was going to have to face 400 men, and he was scared to half to death. And then it all turned out to be benign, and Esau was in a good mood. Wow, everything worked. God had said, you go home, I'll bless you, I'll protect you. Oh, okay. That's the way it worked. Your word is true. And you know what? Jacob was free to go. The truth had set him free. God had told him the truth, and he followed it, and he prayed about it, and he had the right attitude, and he was set free. Wasn't attacked, wasn't killed. Let's go to a few scriptures. Jeremiah 5. Jeremiah 5, and uh, verse 1. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now and know, and seek in the broad places thereof, if you can find a man, if there be any that executes judgment, that seeks the truth, and I will pardon it. Now, what does pardoning mean? Pardoning means you're set free. Trump just pardoned Blagojevich, or whatever his name is, the former uh, governor of Illinois. What does that mean? It means he set him free. He pardoned him. God says, if you seek the truth, I will pardon you. Now, that makes the truth pretty important. Okay, go to chapter 9. He says in verse 2, Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they be all adulterers and an assembly of treacherous men, and they bend their tongues like their bow for lies but they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they know not me, says the Eternal. So Jeremiah was lamenting that Israel didn't want to follow the truth, didn't seek it, weren't valiant for it, didn't stand up for it. Now, if you stand up for the truth, 
in the future. The beast power says, we will kill you. Doesn't they? Isn't that what Scripture says? If you don't accept the mark of the beast, they'll kill you. If you stand up for the truth, when Satan is cast down in Revelation 12, he'll come after you. Now, that's the truth. That's what's going to happen. Now, if you know the truth of God, you're going to be free from all that. You will be protected. Isn't that what he tells us? There's a promise in in Psalms, uh, chapter 60. And verse 4. Speaking of God, it says, You have given a banner, that's a flag, to them that fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Well, the truth is really the banner that God gives us to wave because it makes us free. It saves us. How many people on earth know the truth? Now, he says if we dwell in the habitation of the Most High, we'll be protected. How many people know where the place of safety is? On the face of this earth, with over 7 billion people, and maybe 150,000 that sort of knew about the truth in the church, how many know where the place of safety is? Less than 100. Now, that's going to increase when God does some signs and wonders. But most people believe the promised land's in the Middle East. There's not a hundred people that know it's here in the American Southwest. That's going to change. Didn't we read recently in Isaiah that there'd only be one voice that God would send that knew these things? Just one spot. And we're there. This is the promised land. This is the land where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walked. This is where Jacob followed through and went home to Jerusalem, where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been. Daniel 8. Daniel 8. Let's go down to verse 12. Here's speaking of the time when uh, America, I think, pushes at Iran and gets, then has our horn broken and the country's divided into four pieces and one of those governors, the little horn, pushes against the pleasant land, that is the promised land. So this nation will be divided into four parts. And he magnifies himself to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So the abomination will be set up. Now notice, and an host was given him against the daily sacrifice, 
by reason of transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. So the new world order, the beast and the false prophet, will come to the newly built temple and the newly built Jerusalem, and they will sacrifice a pig on the altar. At least that's what Antiochus Epiphanes originally did. Whether it's a literal pig or not, it's still going to be paganism, heathenism, and a lack of truth, and they'll cast down the truth. Now, God tells us to keep the truth, and it will set us free. It says that this beast and false prophet, especially this little horn here at this point, who is the one who actually sets up the abomination, throws the truth to the ground. Now, you can go to Revelation and learn what happens to the beast and the false prophet. Christ takes them by the nap of the neck and throws them into the lake of fire. So there's a contrast between what happens to those who follow the truth and those who throw it away. We've had a lot of people in the church of God throw the truth away and go back to Protestantism. They're flirting with death itself. Now, hopefully they'll repent. Hopefully. But they're in great jeopardy. Didn't Paul tell us? If you depart from the truth and go back like a sow to her wallow or a dog or however he puts it, you can't have it restored. That's scary. We've received a lot of truth. We've had people who've come here and learned a lot of truth and have left. And we've got a whole lot more that are going to leave. Be cast out. Can't stay here. Because if you're not valiant for the truth and stand up for it, you will not be here. They've denied the calendar and gone to some stupid, upside-down, weird 360-day calendar already. And that isn't what's reflected in the heavens. That's scary business when you begin to throw the truth down and accept something from some Protestant pagans. Scary business. Are we going to be valiant for the truth that sets us free? Micah 7. Here, let's... I'll pick it up in verse 12. And that day also he shall come even to you from Assyria and from the fortified cities and from the fortress even to the river, and from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. The land will be desolate because of the Assyrians that dwell therein, for the fruit of their doings or be desolate because of those of us who are here, and we've sinned, and will be destroyed. Feed my people with your rod, the flock of your heritage, which dwell solitary in the wood in the midst of Carmel. Feed them in Bashan, and Gilead is in the days of old. According to the days of coming out of Egypt, will I show to him marvelous things. Weren't there some pretty marvelous things that happened in Mitzrayim or Egypt? Those plagues? Firstborn dying? Red Sea parting? 
The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. It's going to scare them. They'll lick the dust like a serpent. They'll move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the eternal, our God, and shall fear because of him. Who is like, who is a God like to you? What pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnants of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. There's the word of God. He delights in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and he will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. We can claim these promises the same way Jacob did. And God delivered Jacob. I took some time with that story because it's a good one. And he prayed to God and he was delivered. Now he's telling us here, and he's talking about those who leave the midst of Babylon and go dwell in the wilderness in chapter 4. He's talking about the modern church. And he closes Micah by saying, he will take care of us. Doesn't that set us free? The truth setting us free has a lot of different meanings at a lot of different times. It had a special meaning for Jacob back then. It has a special meaning for us today. Zechariah 8. Verse 9. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you that hear in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Eternal of hosts was laid that the temple might be built. That's now. For before these days, there was no hire for man, nor any for beast, neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in, because of the affliction, for I set all men, every one, against his neighbor. And he tells us then down in 13, Fear not, let your hands be strong, as we work. Verse 19, I think, is uh, where I was headed for. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love the truth and peace. If we love truth and follow it, and we seek peace, not war, not animosity, not putting each other down, not backstabbing, gossiping, but seek peace. All these fasts that we are keeping will become feasts of joy. That's the truth. That's the truth. Do we believe it? John 5, verse 33. <clears throat> John 5.33, you sent to John, 
speaking of John the Baptist, and he bore witness to the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that you might be saved. John the Baptist was a burning and a shining light, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father has given to me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So John brought truth. And Christ is truth. And he had the Spirit of God. So he's promising that his coming was going to bring great blessings. Great blessings. John 14. How much of a blessing do we consider God, I mean Christ, who was sent to bring the truth? Pharisees didn't know the truth. Anyway, uh, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to me or comes to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. So Christ says, I'm the truth. I'm the way. The way to what? The way to freedom. His truth, He will set us free. We just read in Micah how He will forgive and show mercy. And when He forgives and shows mercy, He sets us free from what? From our sin. Now what does that set us from? away from? Death. The penalty of sin is death. And he says, if you follow me, I will forgive you and free you from death. Now, there's a freedom for you. Wouldn't most people on this earth love to be free from death? Now, some of us have and some of us will die. And God says, I mean physically, and God says that he takes pleasure in the death of his saints. Now, if we see one of the saints die... We're very sad, and we cry, and we talk to each other about how it's so sad to lose someone. That's not the way God looks at it. He says, oh, there's somebody that died in the faith, faithful to me, faithful to the truth. I'm pleased. Makes him happy that someone died in the faith. See, he can see. The resurrection. You and I cannot. And when we see death before us, it isn't pleasant at all. But God can see in his mind, in a moment of the twinkling of an eye, that person being raised to eternal life. So he's happy to have another one down that was faithful. If you died today, would God be rejoicing that another one died in the faith? Or would he be very sad that there's one who was not true to me, who didn't endure to the end, who departed from my truth? Therefore, I can't make him free. 
That's kind of scary. Let's go back to First Kings. I'll take a little time here. I'll probably go a little over time, but that's okay. Let's go to First Kings. Seventeen. Here somebody just shows up suddenly. Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to the king, this is when Elijah or Elijah is just introduced suddenly in Scripture, but he goes to Ahab and says, The Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. There shall not be dune or rain these years, but according to my word. The word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Go to the brook and drink of the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to bring you food. Now, we don't know anything about Elijah at this point, but God talked to him and he said, I want you to go tell, Eli- uh, tell Ahab there's not going to be any rain unless I say so. Now, what king's going to believe some guy that shows up and says that? But Elijah must have taken it for the truth when he heard it from God, right? This is truth. All right, I'll go tell you out hell Ahab. Then he says, I want you to go over this brook over here, and you can drink the water, but there's nothing to eat there. So I'm going to send these ravens, and you can kind of lean up and open your mouth like a little baby bird in a nest, and these ravens are going to drop food in your mouth. Doesn't sound sanitary, I guess. But... uh when you're hungry, hey, open wide. Going to eat. I don't know whether they landed on his shoulder or just fluttered there, but they dropped food in his mouth. Now, God had told him to do this. Isn't that a strange request? Or, I mean, a strange direction? God's never told you to do that, has he? He hasn't asked you to lay on your side for 390 days for Israel and 40 for Judah either. He hasn't commanded you to go around butt naked in front of all the public either. But here he told Elijah to do something, and Elijah said, Yes, Lord. And he went and did it. And he'd been there a while, and the brook dried up. There'd not been any rain. Now, this guy, (laughs) this guy's the one that said there won't be any rain. And God had said, Go drink out of this brook, and now there's no rain, and there's no brook. Now what do you do? Can't drink water. Well, the word of God came to him saying, I want you to go to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain you. Now, this, she had been recently widowed apparently. She was a young woman. She had a young child that could be picked up. And God said, I want you to go live with this young widow. Now, that would blow the doors off of most Protestant churches right there. And maybe Israel as well. He tells this guy that he's talking to and telling him truth and everything that Elijah says happens. And now he tells him, I want you to go dwell with this widow. There's a scandal. Anyway, she was gathering sticks and she didn't have much. Little water he wanted from her. And she says, I don't have anything. I have a little bit of meal, and I'm going to take this water and go make one more meal for my son and I, and then we are going to curl up and die because we are starving to death. Now, God had told him to go to 
talk to this widow, and she would take care of him. So he says, okay, I'll do this. And then he gets there, and she says, I don't have anything. We're going to eat one more little meal and die. That doesn't sound too promising. She didn't have a house full of food. She was starving to death. Elijah said to her, fear not. You remember some scriptures in Zephaniah, Haggai, different places, where God says, fear not, be strong, be of good courage, and work. We got the beast power coming. We got plagues and viruses coming. We got sword about to be unleashed on this land very shortly. And God says, fear not, be strong, be of good courage, and work. We got a temple to build. We got a city to build. Oh. What did Elijah tell her? Fear not. Go and do as you have said. But make me thereof a little cake first and bring it to me and after make for you and for your son. Sounds selfish, doesn't it? Make me some first. You, you know. To her, that's saying, starve to death, and your little meal will be even smaller than it was. For thus says the eternal God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail, until the day that the eternal sends rain upon the earth. Now, it was going to be three years. I don't know how much was used up there sitting at the brook, but enough time had elapsed for the brook to dry up at least. So part of the three years was gone. But how, how much ever was left of it, probably over two years, Jeremiah, I mean Jeremiah, Ezekiel, not Ezekiel, this is Elijah, would be there for the rest of the time. And that she would have meal and oil through the whole thing. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah. She believed him. She says, okay. Well, maybe she didn't have much choice. How much did she believe him? I don't know. But she went and did it. And she and he and her house did eat many days. Or it says here, a full year in the Hebrew. So he was there at least a year. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Eternal, which he spoke by Elijah. So God actually made this come to pass. Now, what did this do for the widow? She believed Elijah and did what he said, and it made her free from death. It made her son free from death. Because they had food to eat. Now, It'd be easy to go from here to all the end time stories of John the Baptist and the later on one to come at the end. Who reads the promises of God and tells you the truth about all things that are going to happen and well, what happened to the remnant if they obey God and they're going to be blessed and everybody else on earth is going to be starving to death, killed by the sword and taken into slavery, but God's remnant will be blessed and protected and taken care of. You believe that? Here's where it all started. He says there in Isaiah 55 again, Come and have milk 
and wine without money. I will feed you. I will take care of you. I will protect you beneath the shadow of my wings. That's the truth. Will it make you free? It will make you free from all that is about to happen on this earth. If you believe it and follow the truth. Let's finish this. Verse 17, it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. He died. Quit breathing. Now this shakes her. And she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O you man of God? I don't think I'm going to believe you now, preacher. Now, she was forgetting that she had just been fed for a full year. And normally, you know, if you buy food and, and you start eating out of it, it goes away and you've got to go buy more food, right? In this case, she almost had none. And every time she dipped in the barrel, there was plenty there from then on for a year. Then her son dies. Well, that's scary business. And all of a sudden... Truth evaporated in her mind. I don't believe you anymore, O man of God. Might have been a little sarcasm there. I don't believe you. This thing hasn't happened. O you man of God, I don't have, want to have anything more to do with you. Are you come to me to call my sin in remembrance and to slay my son? She began to think of the past, of whatever sin she may have had, and that maybe God was punishing her because of her past sins. Well, God had accepted her, had he not? He had sent her a man who brought her the truth, the things that God said, and it had happened exactly as God had said. Now, a true believer, when she saw her son die would have said, I wonder how God is going to turn this into a blessing. He's done what he would said so far. And this man of God is here, and he told me what would happen, and it has. And suddenly she was shaken to her roots and questioned Elijah. Okay, give me your son. And he took her, him out of her bosom, still pretty young, and carried him up into a loft where he lived and laid him upon his own bed. He laid him on his, Elijah laid him on his own bed, not the kid's bed. And he cried to the Eternal and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? Now he too was seeking an answer. He didn't know what the answer was, but he took the son up there with him and prayed. And he says, I don't understand this. You've blessed us, and here I'm living with this woman, and now her son died. And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Eternal and said, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's soul come into him again. He didn't know what else to do. So he said, this seems like a curse. 
turn it around, make it a blessing. And the Eternal heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came to him again, and he revived. God resurrected the kid. Right here. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. He'd gone upstairs dead as a doorknob, came back down breathing in pink. The woman said to Elijah, Now by this, I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the eternal in your mouth is truth. In her despair, she had given up on Elijah and said, this can't be true in spite of all the food we've had to eat. Now you've resurrected my kid and I know that God is speaking through you the truth. Now she's convinced. Took some doing. But she's utterly convinced. When God brings us truth, we need to believe it. Let's go from there to Romans 15 right quick. Romans 15. We've been reading a lot of promises from God over the last 24 years. Are they really true? Can you believe them? Romans 15, verse 8. Now I say that Emmanuel was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. God has written this word. Christ came to fulfill the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There, the promises were fulfilled. What did Christ bring us? Truth and thereby freedom. By his word, by his spirit, by his example, he brought us freedom. Now let's understand that freedom a little bit here in in closing. I've got about six more I want to read to you. 1 Corinthians 13. At verse 6. This is a chapter about love. And it talks about love not rejoicing in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. So if you have the love of God, you rejoice in the truth. Now, how does that tie to setting you free? Iniquity is sin. Iniquity is lawlessness. That brings death. Right? All right? But you rejoice in the truth. You know that forgiveness and mercy bring life. Iniquity brings death. So if you want to live and live forever, you had better have love. And love in the truth. What does truth do for you? If you keep the commandments and you don't treat your neighbor badly, if you treat your neighbor good, if you speak well of your neighbor and not evil, and you don't 
carry anger and unforgiveness with you, what does that free you from? It frees you from hate, from envy, from jealousy. You know, when you have hate, envy, and jealousy, who does it hurt? The one you hate? The one you're jealous of? The one you have envy toward? Doesn't hurt them. It's in your heart. It's in your mind. You're the one it hurts. So when you rejoice in truth and iniquity is forgiven from you toward whoever you have an attitude about, that frees you from hate and jealousy and envy. All those negative attitudes. You know, you don't like the lack of peace that comes from bearing a grudge or being angry or trying to get even. That isn't fun. But when you turn loose of it, you're free from all those negative emotions. Therefore, love toward God and love toward your fellow man frees you from all those negative emotions. And what an incredible freedom that is. I can remember things that people have done to me in the past. And some of them I had trouble getting over. And I carried a bad attitude for some time. And then when I finally said, this is ridiculous, and turned it loose, it set me free. I was no longer full of hate and anger and upset. I never told a guy, in one case, that I'd forgiven and forgotten, moved on. He could care less. It wasn't, it wasn't hurting him anyway. I had nothing to do with him. It was me. It was hurting. God says, if you forgive, you forget, and you move forward, you'll be free from all that. Believe Him? Or do you decide to go ahead and carry it? First John 1. <clears throat> Uh, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Then we read in Jeremiah about being valiant for the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Emmanuel, His sons, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Oh, I haven't sinned. Okay, you're deceiving yourself, and the truth isn't in you. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We just don't like to admit it. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You ever have that feeling after working and sweating and being dirty, and you're just filthy all over? I remember cleaning the manure out of the chicken pens at times. And all that manure in the air, and you breathe it, and it gets all over your clothes and in your hair. And when you get on dung and out the chicken pen, 
you feel really filthy. And you go in and take a hot shower and shampoo and wash all of that off from the hair all the way down and then you feel good. So we sin. We make mistakes. We feel bad. Our conscience bothers us. And then we go before our Father and through the sacrifice of Christ we ask for forgiveness and all that filth melts away and we can feel righteous because the sin has been removed. And we can feel righteous until we do it all over again. Re, uh, you know, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. That's the way it is as a human being. First John 3, verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word, by our words, neither in tongue, what we say, but in deed and in truth. We can have lying lips and lying tongue. We can say we love while no telling what's really going through our mind. Love in truth and in what you do. All right, let's see one element added to this in 1 Timothy 3. Almost done here. 1 Timothy 3. Verse 15, but if I tarry long, that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. He built his church. He said the gates of the grave would not prevail against us, and that he would give truth to his church. So here, he equates the church to the truth. Now, you better find the right church. You better find the right branch of the church. You better find where the truth, the pillar of the living God is. And once you find it, he says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, but to meet together so much the more as you see the day approaching. We're here to help and strengthen and encourage one another. That's what my job is, as I sit here speaking, is to encourage us to follow God and to hang to His truth and not depart from it. The church is here to help establish you in the truth and keep you in the truth. As he states, First, or Second Thessalonians, I guess it is, I have down here. Uh, verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the eternal, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Now, I read to you how the Spirit of God is necessary to have the truth. So, he has the Word of God here, and the Spirit joined together, and that's to bring us salvation. 
Oh. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. All those Protestants aren't going to heaven or hell. They're going to the grave and come up in the second resurrection and have an opportunity to learn the truth and to have a chance at salvation. You're having it now. God has revealed the truth to you. You know about a resurrection. You know about the bride of Christ. You know you can be part of the 144,000. You have the truth. The Protestants don't. You do. You have the truth about what's going to happen here at the end to the church and the remnant and all those promises and blessings to it. You have that. You know what's coming. You know how to escape it. You even know where the place of safety is. And hardly anybody on earth does, including the church. We have knowledge of salvation. Just two more. Isaiah 26. Verse 1. In that day, when these blessings that he's enumerating here begin, shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open you the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter therein. God is going to protect and make a strong city of those who believe and keep the truth. And they'll be allowed to enter in to those whom God is going to protect. Now that's speaking physically. Protection here at the end. Let's include one more then in Colossians. Colossians 1. Pick it up in verse 2. Colossians 1, verse 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be to you and peace, goodwill and peace from God the Father and the eternal Emmanuel. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Emmanuel, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ and of the love which you have to all the saints. Once we heard that you were following the truth, and you had the love of God, we've been praying for you. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come to you as it is in all the world, and bringing forth fruit, as it does also in you, since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. You learned about the reason for your existence. You learned about the kingdom of God. You learned about eternal life. The truth about the resurrection and the truth of God's kingdom coming here on earth and us living in it and dwelling with Christ and the Father and ruling a thousand years and then through all eternity is an incredible truth. Way beyond what we learned about a so-called heaven and hell. 
way beyond that. You have understanding that very few do. And I pray for you, and I hope you pray for me, that we all enter into glory in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. Because we've learned the truth, and the truth will make us free from the flesh. It'll make us free from the negativity of the flesh. It'll make us free from worry and fear. It'll give us peace and love and happiness and security for all eternity. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free.